Well, let us pray. Dear Lord, please use me as your vessel to carry your words as a bridge between Flannery and the fine people here today. Amen. All right, so I'm sorry if I stood him by up last Sunday at my 40th reunion at Sewanee. That's kind of hard to believe. I, I don't think they got the math quite right, but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll defer to their judgment. Well, Jocelyn and I had a great time up there. And uh, anyway, so I'll be here today and next Sunday. So we took last Sunday and added on to, uh, to uh, uh, after this. Now, um, first Sunday we talked about uh, a Good Man is Hard to Find, which is her most famous story, just one of the best ever written. And then we went to uh, uh, to uh, Good Country People, and which is, I guess, her second most famous with Holga with her wooden leg, which is just unbelievable. And we were talking last time about some central symbols, how the wooden leg was her wooden soul. And uh, it's talking about her glasses. If you notice that the... Uh, as soon as her glasses were removed by Manly Pointer, the evil Bible salesman, uh, she starts seeing the truth that, you know, about who he really is and that she doesn't have all the answers. And what I'd like to do today is a story that's uh, not nearly as well known as the other two, but I think is just excellent. You can tell this one's done some hard teaching. <laughs> if, if I drop the book, then uh, the course will make no sense because the pages will be out of order there. But it's called Greenleaf, and uh, it's just really a wonderful story. It's one of the favorites of Carter Martin. I had him up at, uh, at uh, UAH when I was lucky to have him, and he was uh, one of the world's authorities on, on Flannery O'Connor. So anyway, Greenleaf, and I wore green today, my, my usual navy suit. All right, so be thinking about the title and all the meanings of green, okay? Um, let's see, green can mean... Life, yeah, it's going to be taking place in the spring, and so look for the green there. You folks with the Great Gatsby, the green light, you know, Daisy's green light on her dock, uh, Sir Gawain in the green night, uh, you know, it's, it's a magical color, it's, uh, you know, it's money, it's envy, and uh, I think uh, the, uh, all those things work pretty well here. All right, so we start out, the main character is Mrs. May. Look at the significance of the names. Ms. May, of course, came with spring. And she, her bedroom window was low and faced the east. Uh, and the bull, the bull's going to be our central symbol. Watch for this uh, bull here. Uh, silvered in the moonlight, stood under it, his head raised as if he listened, like some patient god come down to woo her. I mean, so much of the story is just in that very first sentence. And that bull's going to be Jesus coming to woo uh, Mrs. May. And it's uh, just kind of unorthodox. It's almost like something out of, you know, mytho mythological there. There was a hedge wreath that he had ripped loose for himself, caught in the tips of his horns. So she wakes up in the morning. She looks at her bedroom window, and she sees this bull that's been having a habit lately of escaping from his pen and coming over in the, the next-door neighbors and coming to her house. And there he's got a wreath around his horns, which is going to be, right? What's that going to be? Jesus, if he's if he's Jesus coming together, then that's the crown of thorns, right? So Jesus is coming to woo her. Uh, oh, cool! I love it when these former students come in. That's so great. That is wonderful. The wreath slipped down to the base of his. We're doing green leaf, 
Oh, it's so good to have you with us. Slip down to the base of his horns where it looked like a menacing, prickly crown, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Now, I'm, I'm not doing the whole story, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to try to get some of the key parts of it. Now, so there's, uh, there's Mrs. May, and then the Greenleafs are some tenant farmers that are kind of, you know, using part of her land. So those are about the only characters, the, the Greenleafs and Mrs. May, who's going to be our protagonist there. Okay, all right, uh, and the green leaves are, you know, they're just, they're kind of good old poor country folk out there. And Mrs. Uh, Mrs. May's gonna be looking down her nose at the green leaves, her tenant formers, all the t all the time, kind of like Granny did a little bit, the grandmother and a good man's hard to find. Talking about what's what's good people <laughs> you know you're you're just good you know some people are just a little better than others she's got some of these some kind of that false feeling of uh, you know of, of manners and that some people are a little better off uh beside the wife mr greenleaf was an aristocrat <laughs> he, she she doesn't think much of mr greenleaf but next to his wife i mean he looks like a prince right so uh Anyway, talking about the bull again, the upper part of his face sloped gradually to the lower and was sh shaped like a rough chalice. Well, again, the diction's so important. So the chalice, of course, makes you think of <laughs> chalice, like, you know, communion, right? Okay. Now, her sons are named Wesley and Schofield. Wesley, of course, we're back to Wesley with a good man's hard to find. Got significance, Wesley, such as... Well, John Wesley, right, founder of the Methodist Church, okay? But uh, her son did not found the Methodist Church. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about English. You're never wrong, right? Math, X is it's right or wrong. English is either symbolic or ironic, right? So that's how that's how we stay in business. You're never wrong. So you've got two ways to jump. So this is ironic. He's not Wesley. Uh, neither of them cared what happened. Now she's running a farm, and they don't care anything about this farm. Schofield was a business type, and Wesley's an intellectual. She's she's one of an early. Uh, helicopter parent. She's always making excuses for her boys. They're worthless. They're no good. But in her eyes, you know, she's always coming up with some euphemistic thing like how they're business or intellectuals. Intellectual means he's lazy and he doesn't work, right? Okay. And, and they love to, the, she's so good to them. She, her husband's dead. She's been running this farm all by herself. She's hates being on the you know, farmer, but that's what she's had to do. That's all there's left to her. And they've been absolutely no help and they love to aggravate her. Well, Mama, I'm not going to marry until you're dead and gone, and then I'm going to marry me some nice fat girl who can take over this place, some nice lady like Mrs. Greenleaf. I mean, just, just, I mean, when you're in family, you, you know how to hurt people in your family. You know where the, where the little, uh, the, the tender spots are, and he's just, uh, you know, just aggravating. I, I think Mrs. Greenleaf's really attractive, and that's I'm gonna marry somebody like her, and she just goes crazy. Uh, let's see. And so they're t look. At, speaking of Mrs. Greenleaf, she's uh, she's they, we see her, and she's swaying back and forth on her hands and knees and groaning, Jesus, Jesus. And so she's kind of an old time Pentecostal, you know, type deal. She's she's very religious. And she's something of a fool for for Mrs. May. Mrs. May, as a you know, hadn't really had much time for religion, and her faith is not uh, very strong. Mrs. Greenleaf is she's just I mean she's just almost speaking in tongues and speaking to Jesus. 
Mrs. May winced. She thought the word Jesus should be kept inside the church building, like other words inside the bedroom. She was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was true. So you've got, you've got, you know, oh yeah, I've got, oh yeah, I believe in God. Not, not a whole lot, though. And so, and so that's got to be kind of like with Holgo like, two weeks ago with her wooden leg and her philosophy major and everything else. This falseness has to be stripped away for her to be receptive for grace, right? So in his, you know, and Mrs. Greenleaf saying, oh, Jesus stabbed me in the heart which foreshadows the end of the story. Her stories are so beautifully constructed. Uh, Schofield was a successful businessman, and Wesley was a successful intellectual. He thinks a lot, okay? And now she's got two sons, and Mrs. May's got two sons, and Mrs. Greenleaf also has two sons, uh, O.T. and E.T. I mean, I just love her names. They're wonderful. Mr. Greenleaf's pride in them began with the fact that they were twins. They were energetic and hardworking, and she would admit to anyone that they had come a long way and that the Second World War was responsible for it. So there's the green with envy. Her boys are worthless. The Greenleaf's sons are just terrific. They were industrious. They work hard. They've been very successful. Uh, and uh, the only reason that they were successful because World War II came along and, you know, they got the GI Bill and stuff like that, right? So the green for envy. They had both joined the service and disguised in their uniforms. They could not be told from other people's children. She just won't give them any credit at all because that makes her boys look good, right? The smartest thing they had done was to get sent overseas and there to marry French wives. They they hadn't married French trash either. They had married nice girls who naturally couldn't tell that they murdered the king's English or that the Greenleafs were who they were. So they're smart to marry foreign girls and so didn't realize how worthless they are. So she's, she's trying to put them in the worst possible light. Wesley's heart condition, her own son, yeah, kind of like Manly Pointer, he doesn't really have much of a decent heart at all, had not permitted him to serve his country. See, making excuses why her boys weren't war heroes, right? But Schofield had been in the army for two years. He had not cared for it. Like, who, who cared for World War II, right? It was the war's fault, not his, right? And at the end of his military service, he was only a private first class, which is not on the fast track. Or, you know, with everybody dying in front of you, I mean, if you're still private in the war, you, you weren't very good, were you? The Greenleaf boys were both some kind of sergeants. And Mr. Greenleaf in those days had never lost an opportunity of referring to them by their rank. They had both managed to get wounded. I mean, it's just like they did it on purpose to kind of rise in the ranks, right? And now they both had pensions. Further, as soon as they were released from the Army, they took advantage of all the benefits and went to the School of Agriculture at the university. The taxpayers, meanwhile, supporting their French wives. So they're just, uh, it's, uh, we did it for them. They each had three little children apiece who spoke Greenleaf English, which kind of country, right, and French. I'll put that in for you, okay? The late Mr. May, a businessman, had bought the place when land was down, and when he died, it was all he had left her. The boys had not been happy to move to the country to a broken-down farm, but there was nothing else for her to do. Schofield, her son, only exasperated her beyond insurance, but Wesley caused her real anxiety. He was thin and nervous and bald, and being an intellectual was a terrible strain on his disposition. So he's a grump because he's so smart, right? 
talking like a, a helicopter parent. She doubted if he would marry until she died, but she was certain that, that then a wrong woman would get him. Nice girls didn't like Schofield, but Wesley didn't like nice girls. He didn't like anything. He drove 20 miles every day to the university where he taught and 20 miles back every night. But he said he hated the 20-mile drive, and he hated the second-rate university. So he's kind of a failure as a teacher. And he hated the morons who attended it. Well, he, he's got a passion for teaching, doesn't he? he? He hated the country, and he hated the life he lived, and he hated living with his mother and his idiot brother. And he hated hearing for about the Dern Dairy and the Dern Help and the Dern the the scope the uh, Greenleafs have have built the boys have built a nice dairy out there and he so of course he hates hearing about that because he's jealous right um, let's see but, uh, let's see but in spite of all he said he never made any move to leave he talked about Paris and Rome. But he never went even to Atlanta. So he's, he's <laughs> she had a great sense of humor, didn't she? Anyway, so they're sitting down for a meal, and Wesley pulled the paper back toward his plate and stared at her full in the face. Uh, the mother's making some, you know, suggesting he help around the place. And he said, I wouldn't milk a cow to save your soul from hell. <laughs> oh, my God. They're awful. They're just awful. And then she throws back, well, O.T. and E.T. are fine boys. She knows how to hurt them, too, right? They ought to have been my sons. Ooh. The thought of this was so horrible that her vision of Wesley was blurred at once by a wall of tears. All she saw was his dark shape rising quickly from the table, which is more foreshadowing. Remember that dark shape coming. She said, she said, when I die, I don't know what's going to become of you. You're always yapping about when you die, he growled. But you look pretty healthy to me. I mean, oh, oh, this is your basic dysfunctional family, right? Her city friends said she was the most remarkable woman they knew to go practically penniless and with no experience out to a run-down farm and to make a success of it. Uh, and so she's worked really hard and gotten zero help from her kids. Anyway, she goes out to the uh, to OT's and ET's driveway. It is their bull that's going and getting loose and coming out to her place, okay? So she goes out, and this is her way of kind of getting back a little bit about about over this bull. This is about the only thing they've done wrong. And she sees their children, and they were in overalls and were barefooted, but they were not as dirty as she might have expected, <laughs> just grudging, grudging praise, okay? Um, and so uh, they, they go to... Uh, Let's say they've got a milking parlor there that they that they have built, and so but the ET and OT are not there, and she asks a, a one of the workers out there, black worker, says and you know to give a message. She says, "Can you remember a message?" Like kind of in a patronizing way, he says, "I'll remember it if I don't forget it." <laughs> I've I've heard people say that. <laughs> Hard to argue with that logic, isn't it? Right. Okay. Anyway, so she uh, leaves a message about get her get their darn bull, right? She says, uh, "It says he says if I knows missed, and I she had a great ear for the language. Missed, you ever heard missed OT instead of Mister Missed OT and Missed ET? They going to say go ahead on and shoot him. He done busted up one of our trucks already. So she's been saying if you don't take care of this bull, I'm gonna shoot him. 
And he says, well, they'll probably say, go ahead and shoot him. He's been trouble anyway. <clears throat> she had always suspected that, the, that E.T. and O.T. fought between themselves secretly like her own boys do, right? So again, to make her feel better, well, all, all, all brothers do. The boy, and this is the, the worker, he's, he's kind of a young guy. The boy said, they never quarrels. Hey, Virginia, they like one man in two skins. Hmm, I expect you just never heard them quarrel. Nor nobody else heard them neither. I mean, he doesn't back down from her at all. He says, well, I'm sure they must be quarreling. No, they never quarrel. They get along great. Uh, nobody's heard them quarrel. And she says, I've always been a victim, you know, kind of fearing sorry for herself. Well, she goes home from this wonderful pair of brothers that get along so well. And, uh, and what's her, what are her sons doing? She heard a crash of dishes. The hall door was open and Schofield was going out of it. Wesley was lying like a large bug on his back with the edge of, uh, of the overturned table cutting him across the middle and broken dishes scattered on top of him. She pulled the table off him and caught his arm to help him rise, but he scrambled up and pushed her off. She's trying to help her son with a furious charge of energy and flung himself out of the door after his brother. So they've been having a fight there. And so the sky was crossed with thin red and purple bars. Okay, and she's getting back to the color symbolism like she did in A Good Man's Hard to Find. Now red's an archetype for, what do we say? been a while but not long not long one of my stars it's violence and death right so foreshadowing the violence at the end in purple well we're not gonna miss that here right purple's a color of royalty and advent religion right okay so so we're getting we're getting closer to the uh religious part and behind them the sun was moving down slowly as if it were descending a ladder I wonder if it's an illusion like Jacob's Ladder or something, maybe, from the Bible. I, I bet she kind of had that, don't you think? Jacob's Ladder was used to what? To, as a way to heaven? Y'all help me. What's Jacob's Ladder? Help. Is God coming down? And angels. Perfect, see. You still got it. You still got it there. All right. It's like riding a bicycle, right? English class. Anyway, she says, oh, she finally finds Mr. Greenleaf. All right. And, uh... Oh, and the sun was moving down slowly, so we're getting closer. What are the two signs of whoever? We said that somebody receives salvation in every one of her stories, right? And what are our two clues? The horizon, the tree line, or the peacock, right? And so we're getting closer. She's talking about the sun coming down. She's starting to move closer to the tree line, all right, where the heaven and earth meet. And that's, finally she finds Mr. Greenleaf, the father of these two boys, who owned the bull, she says, I'm surprised at O.T. and E.T. to treat me this way. I thought they'd have more gratitude. Those boys, now she's trying to make him feel bad, right? Those boys spent some mighty happy days on this place, didn't they, Mr. Greenleaf? Mr. Greenleaf didn't say anything. I think they did. But they've forgotten all the nice little things I did for them now. If I recall, now see, if she makes them look bad, then her other boy, her sons don't look so bad, right? If I recall, they wore my boy's old clothes. The old clothes, see? They got the hand-me-downs, so she expects some great gratitude over the hand-me-downs, right? They, got my, they wore my boy's old clothes and played with my boy's old toys and hunted with my boy's old guns. They swam in my pond. So, uh, 
You know, they ought to be more grateful than let their bull run loose, right? They didn't come because... They didn't come because I'm a woman. Well, now she's playing the gender card, okay? Any, see, any little weapon, any arrow she can get out of her quiver, they just don't respect me because I'm a woman, right? You can get away with anything when you're dealing with a woman. If there were a man running this place, quick as a snake striking. Oh, now, why snake? Satan, right? Tradition, archetype for evil, right? Mr. Greenleaf said, you got two boys. They know you got two men on the place. You know, why didn't your boys get rid of that bull, right? The sun had disappeared behind the tree line. There you go. We're getting closer now. And that, that night, she goes home, and she that night in her sleep, she heard a sound of some, as if some large stone were grinding a hole on the outside wall of her brain. Like God is coming, okay, and God's trying to uh, having to like having to strip away Holga's wooden leg two weeks ago to, so that you know he can get to her soul. Now here God's got to he's got to grind through some crust. She's a crusty old lady. She's had to be tough. I mean, running this farm all these years and with no husband and no sons to help out, but she's got a lot of crusty kind of meanness there that he's got to grind through. I remember reading a C.S. Lewis short story one time and it's just like this guy when he's in his house and he hears just some heavy presence on the roof and he hears God saying child child let me come in it's just uh, kind of I think the same thing here um, tr son was trying to burn through the tree line she became aware after time the noise was the son trying to burn through the tree line and she stopped to watch so, so there's the second mention of the tree line here okay Anyway, so she, the next day she gets up and she goes, Mr. Greenleaf says, we're going to shoot the bull. He's going to make Mr. Greenleaf shoot his own son's bull. Now see, that she's showing how upset and angry she is and really with her own boys more than anything else. Okay? And he says, hey, now he works for her. I mean, he's, he's a tenant farmer there. But uh, he, even he's objecting to this. He said, ain't, ain't nobody ever asked me to shoot my boy's own bull. And he wiped his hands violently. I mean, he can't say no because, I mean, she could throw him off the land. Presently, she, he emerged again. He goes in, he gets his gun, opened the door violently, and threw himself into the seat beside her. He held the gun between his knees, so they're going to drive out in her little truck to shoot the bull. The birds were screaming everywhere. Spring is here, she said. So you've got that juxtaposition with the, you know, the shooting the bull thing, but also spring with its connotations of green leaf. Spring, spring of connotations for what? Resurrection, rebirth, Easter, new life. You know, as she as she receives salvation, what a perfect time to do it. And rebirth, right? And her name is Mrs. May. Okay? Anyway, they get there, and the bull was almost in the center of it, grazing peacefully among the cows. Okay. Well, in my, as you may know, for like 30, uh, 33 years, I coached track and cross country. And a bunch of it was up at Randolph in Huntsville, and then a bunch of it was down here at Altamont. And... Uh, I remember the, the challenge is always find a nice grassy area to train when you're in, you know, in the middle of a of a city. So if you're anybody acquainted with Huntsville, Jones Valley, they've just done a lot better. Okay, anyway, Randolph's near Jones Valley, and back before they they've got 
they really opened that up. I was just up there recently, and they've got all kinds of building going on there and golf course and stuff. But for a long time, it was just a huge pasture. The the Joneses owned just a huge, uh, for, of Jones Valley, of course, and they just kept up there. They raised cows right there in the middle of Huntsville. They had big herds of cows and stuff. Anyway, one day, I got permission. They, their girls went to Randolph. And so I got permission for the cross-country team to go run on their farm, their pasture out there, I said, which is just a dream for a cross-country coach. Get them off the streets, right, off the concrete. Anyway, so I tried this once. And so we, we scaled the fence. We got in there. And we're out there running along, having a good practice. And all of a sudden, there's like this stampede of cattle coming straight for us. <laughs> the cattle right there, they're out there leaving. And then all of a sudden, they, something spooked, and they started heading right towards us. And I, this is reaching way back. Anybody remember Rawhide? <laughs> We're not going to show our age, are we? Anyway, Rowdy Yates and all that group. I had this flashback to Rawhide where, where I remember when the cattle come, the herd coming, they're supposed to break it head. Okay, usually, usually they peeled off. Sometimes they didn't, and if they didn't, then you're toast, right? And so I'm just praying that they're thinking I'm Rowdy Yates or somebody, and, and that they're going to pee. I said, I mean, they, now that, that'd make the news, wouldn't it? If the Randolph cross-country team got trampled by a herd of cattle there on Jones Valley Farm, that'd be the story of the year, would it? But uh, I wouldn't want to go talk to the parents and say, I just killed your child. Well, they got trampled. It's just, I, just be horrible. So anyway, they what see... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still here, so they peeled off. You know, I'm I'm there giving I'm giving them my best gorilla look, you know, and just kill me first, because I'm not about to go back and tell, talk to these mamas about why their kid didn't make it back from cross. <laughs> yes, I needed Clint Eastwood badly. Right, Dirty Harry would have helped. Okay, anyway, she said. She's, and then she's just getting at him. She's just digging at him, digging at him. If those boys cared a thing about you, Mr. Greenleaf, they'd come here for that bull. I'm surprised him. He's trying to make them, you know, ashamed of his sons because she's ashamed of her sons, right? The pasture was smaller than the last. A green arena encircled almost entirely by words. Now, Flannery was such a great craftsman there. Why would she use arena, maybe, if she's telling this story? I think that's the perfect word. She goes to this, opens up, and there's this little pasture here. Then she said it looked like an arena. If she's telling this, pardon? Gladiators, yeah. What about the arenas with the Romans? I'm thinking Romans. In the arenas, how does that fit this story? The Christians fighting the lions and all that stuff. So, again, I think that's what she had in mind there. Okay? Uh, and the Romans used animals, so which ties in with the bull, doesn't it, right? And then we get to this fabulous end of the story. And remember, I said a couple couple weeks ago, Flannery said, find the heart of the story. Find the heart of the story. And the whole story and all this kind of, you know, what I've been telling you so far is to get you to this point. I'll just read these last couple pages here. She was going to say, Mr. Greenleaf, if I have to walk into those woods with you and stay all afternoon, we're going to find that bull. And shoot him. You're going to shoot him if I have to pull the trigger for you. See, she's going to make him do it. And this maybe kind of get him in bad with his sons and stuff like that. And it's pretty petty, isn't it? Okay. When, she, when he saw she meant business, he would return and shoot the bull quickly himself. She got back into the car and drove to the center of the pasture. Now, see, he's gone off looking for the bull, and she's by herself. 
in the truck. So he would not have to have so far to walk to reach her when he came out of the woods. At this moment, she could picture him sitting on a stump making lines in the ground with a stick. She decided, just killing time, she would wait exactly ten minutes by her watch. Then she would begin to honk. She got out of the car and walked around a little and then sat down on the front bumper to wait and rest. She was very tired, and she lay her head back against the hood and closed her eyes. She did not understand why she should be so tired when it was only mid-morning. Through her closed eyes, she could feel the sun, S-U-N, but of course, I kind of think of Dublon Tondras, right? Like the S-O-N is coming together. And remember we talked about how Flannery just talked about the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. And my wife and I went to war a couple of weeks ago about, you know, who got saved and whether she deserved it and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, she didn't, I don't think she cared if we understood she said, God understands, and he's, he's got a reason for picking whom he picks, which always sounded kind of like the doctrine of the elect with the Puritans. I've, I've never heard anybody compare Flannery O'Connor with the Puritans, but, you know, it kind of sounded like that to me. The sun was red hot overhead. She opened, so she's, here's this Christian, but she doesn't know it, in the arena. She opened her eyes slightly, but the white light forced her to close them again. Uh, she, I think she, uh, uh, kind of that white light, you know, of, of death coming to get you, that some people see. For some time she lay back against the hood, wondering drowsily why she was so tired. With her eyes closed, she didn't think of time as divided into days and nights, but into past and future. She decided she's time she'd been working continuously for 15 years. Anyway, for... Before any kind of judgment seat, judgment, she would be able to say, I've worked. I've not wallowed. At this very instant, I, I recall in a lifetime of work. And then she's just thinking, I'm, I'm afraid, imagining talking to uh, a with Mr. Greenleaf. I'm afraid your wife has let religion warp her. She once said tactfully to Mr. Greenleaf, tactfully. Everything in moderation, you know. Mr. Greenleaf said, she cured a man once it that half his gut was eat out with worms. Oh, it was a, so again, she's a fool. Mrs. May doesn't really believe in God. And Mrs. Greenleaf is doing some faith healing, like some miracle out of, out of the Bible there. But again, Flannery has to give it her a twist, like it's his stomach and worms. She's got to get a little bit grotesque in there, right? And the reason, as we said two weeks ago was she used grotesque was the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace they're using grace to get your attention and to, and to say this matters it's not to gross you out right anyway uh, poor souls she thought so simple she sat up looked at her watch more than ten minutes had passed she had not heard a shot a new thought occurred to her suppose Mr. Greenleaf had aroused the bull chunking stones at him the animal had turned on him and run him up against a tree and gored him the irony deepened ot and et would then get a shyster lawyer and sewer again always looking on bad side it'd be a fitting end to her 15 years with the green leaves she thought of it almost with pleasure as if she'd hit on the perfect ending for a story she was telling her friends then she decided to honk she got up and reached inside the car window and gave three, biblical number, right? Three sustained honks. Then she went back and sat down on the bumper again. And then here we go. Here's our dramatic climax. Here's our technical climax. Here's the heart of the story, right? In a few minutes, something emerged 
from the tree line. A black, heavy shadow. Remember that black shadow we talked about earlier, right? That tossed its head several times and then bounded forward. After a second, she saw it was the bull. And if we speak, we're, we've been talking about Christianity, but what about like uh, mythology? How about the bull there? Yeah, well, you've got a bullfighting. You got that going too. The 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 yeah, combat, but right. And then in mythology, a bull is Zeus. Okay, and as we know, in one of the myths, what was it? Uh, who did he come after? Like he uh, came as a bull, and he raped her. And remember the uh, Zeus coming as a lover, coming as a bull. So she's put on mythology and uh, the religion. And the ancient Romans, right? Uh, bounded forward after so I was a bull. He was crossing the pasture toward her at a slow gallop, a gay, almost rocking gait, as if he were overjoyed to find her again. It's like Jesus coming for her, right? And it's so good to see you again. You've been away from me so long. She looked beyond him to see if Mr. Greenleaf was coming out of the woods, too, but he was not. Here he is, Mr. Greenleaf, she called. And then she saw that the bull, his head lowered, was racing toward her. She remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing disbelief. She stared at the violent black streak bounding toward her as if she had no sense of distance, could not decide what his intention was. And the bull had buried his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover. So there's Jesus as, as the bridegroom, right? As a bridegroom. It's Zeus. It's, it's Jesus as the bridegroom coming to embrace someone that he loves. So he comes. He lowers his horns. He comes at her. She remained perfectly, let's see, and before her expression had changed, one of his horns sank until it pierced her heart. Oh, isn't that great? See, he had to pierce her heart to open it up to receive grace because her heart got kind of crusted over, right, from all the bad things that happened to her. And the other curved around her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. Isn't that perfect? Just coming and embracing her. She continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. What's the last thing she sees? What she look up at? The tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. And she had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored. There's that shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. She's been able to see, but she's been blind, right? Now that she's blinded by death, she has that vision of God in heaven but who finds the light unbearable. So there's your technical and dramatic climax right there. It's just, you know, God coming to get her. Mr. Greenleaf, right after the nick of time, is running toward her from the side, his gun raised, and we see the tree line gaping behind him and nothing under his feet. That's the last thing she sees. He shot the bull four times through the eye. And then and she, it seemed like Mr. Greenleaf reached her to be bent over whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. He's just bending over. It's like, you know, some last final words, God talking to her. Um, and remember what I said. What a great story. And what, uh, what Flannery said, as we talked about before, is uh, 
uh, remember it takes the uh, do a little criticism her little essay called the reasonable use the unreasonable and she's talking about um, belief is the engine that makes perception operate and she's saying here remember is that uh, I often ask myself what makes a story work and what makes it hold up as a story and I decide it's probably some action some great gesture of a character that's unlike any other story, which indicates where the real heart of the story is. Um, now, the lines of motion that interest the writer are usually invisible. They are lines of spiritual motion. And uh, in this, and he's talking about uh, a good man is hard to find. In this story, you should be looking at for such things as the action of grace in the grandmother's soul. And not for the dead bodies, the little thing like the dead family. That's not, but you look at what's happening to the grandmother. With the serious writer, violence is never an end in itself. It is the extreme situation that best reveals what we are essentially. And that's what Mrs. Greenleaf here. It's the extreme situation that reveals what we are essentially, what our essence is. The man in the violent situation reveals those qualities least dispensable in his personality. Those qualities which are all he will have to take into eternity with him. That's some of the most important lines she ever wrote. And all this falseness that of Mrs. May is stripped where all the, her, the worthless sons and her jealousy, the green for jealousy there of, of, uh, of the Greenleaf boys, and all that stripped away when Jesus comes in a violent embrace to take her to heaven. It's a it's really remarkable story there. Um, well, Jocelyn a couple of weeks ago was calling me to task about she just didn't get it. She just she just didn't see how that person could be saved. And as I said, Flannery, I don't think she'd care if you got it or not. But but she's God's got a reason. God knows, right? And so anyway, just to to follow up on that a little bit, we, just for those of you that were here for a good man is hard to find. Uh, it's uh. You know, you're going to have ten teachers teach something, and you may get ten different presentations. Uh, and so that's why you have to use your judgment and maybe trust me a little bit. But uh, anyway, just to show you how different it is, uh, here she's talking about the grandmother and said she's in the most significant position of life over as a Christian. She's facing death. And to all appearances, she, like the rest of us, not well prepared for and so, anyway, let me just show you what this is. I remember Dr. Martin reading us this letter, and he carried, he covered this up because this was a letter that just come out. This is from, this is uh, from a a name teacher at a name university, and this is a letter he sent to Flannery O'Connor with his interpretation of a good man's hard to find. Okay, and he says, and he, he had 90 university students, this is at a college, and they've been discussing a good man is hard to find. And we've debated several possible interpretations. We're, un, we're dissatisfied. In general, we believe the appearance of the misfit, we're talking about a, a killer who blows away a whole family. Okay, most of you read this story. We believe the appearance of the misfit is not real in the same sense that the instance of the first half of the story are real. Vaguely, we believe, imagines the appearance of the misfit. Uh, and that, let's see, they were provoked during the stopover at the roadside restaurant. We be, vaguely, we believe, identifies himself with the misfit 
and so plays two roles in the imaginary last half of the story. Like the last half of the critical call doesn't even happen. Uh, but we cannot, after great effort, determine the point at which reality fades into illusion. So the second half, the critical part, is all a dream. Um, does the accident literally occur, or is it part of Bailey's dream? This is a name school, okay? Please believe me when I say we're not seeking an easy way out of our difficulty. We admire your story, examine with great care, we are con but we are convinced that we are missing something important. Now, that's the only thing he got right. Please enlighten us, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember Dr. Martin reading this letter back. <laughs> Imagine you're, you're a prestigious full professor. You get this in your mailbox. The interpretation of your 90 students and three teachers is fantastic. I know he's patting his... And about as far from my intentions as it could get to be. If it were a legitimate interpretation, my story would be little more than a trick. And its interest would be simply for abnormal psychology. I am not interested in abnormal psychology. There's a change of tension from the first part of the story to the second where the misfit enters. But there's no lessening of reality. This story is meant not to be realistic in the sense it portrays everyday doings. Bailey's only importance is as the grandmother's boy and the driver of the car. It is the grandmother who first recognized the misfit and who is most concerned with him throughout. The story is a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfit's more profoundly felt involvement with Christ's action which set the world off balance for him. The meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it. But meaning cannot be captured in an interpretation. If teachers are in the habit of approaching a story as if it were a research problem for which any answer is believable, so long as it's not obvious, then I think students will never learn to enjoy fiction. <laughs> too much interpretation, certainly worse than too little. So I'm always careful about that. And where feeling for a story is absent, theory will not supply it. So she just shreds him, shreds this guy. And at the very end, she remembers her manners, right? She's a southern lady, right? My tone is not meant to be obnoxious. I'm in a state of shock. <laughs> said, oh my gosh, that anybody could read my story and get that interpreted. I'm just in shock. I, I'm, pardon me if I'm being rude, but I'm in shock. Oh, that's great. So she, I've got some more to read, but she pretty well backs me up. So anyway, I've, I've, been, I've been worried about you for a couple of weeks since she... <laughs> took me to task here. Anyway, thank you for coming. We've got to fill this place up. That's great. And so next week, last week, got a great short story if you want to read Revelation. And then I'm going to read you. There's a really a fine story. That's why I think Craig said that's one of his and Joe's. They really like that. And Parker's Back, which is bizarre. If you want to read something really bizarre, read Parker's Back. That's what I'll close out with. But thanks for coming. That's some of you need to get to church, don't you? All right. Thanks a lot.